My name is Velma Vouloir, and you are listening to Controversy. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to episode 10 of Controversy. As always, it's me, Velma Vouloir, your hostess of this deliciously smutty history podcast. We're still here in podcast landia, despite that Instagram and Facebook has essentially banned me from posting just about anything, which is so shit because we're not doing anything wrong, we're not hurting anyone, we're just sharing gorgeous tidbits and tales and visuals to consenting adults about beautiful, erotic nature things that have happened on this crazy little planet. Um, how are you guys all going? I've had a wonderful and incredibly busy week with my burlesque work. I have lots of really exciting things happening there, lots of planning and developing and teaching. Uh, We had our student showcase last Sunday, which is always such a highlight in my life. There's just never anything quite like a live show, I think. It doesn't matter how big or small, I think... You know, we all just have this newfound appreciation for what it means to be in one another's company, you know, to be entertained in the moment and live with no screens or editing or separation. It's so good. You get such a buzz and that never goes away no matter how long or, you know, how often you go and see a live show. So if it's safe to do so when you're listening to this and you have the means, then Definitely go out there and safely support the local artists and entertainers in your area. They need you now more than ever. They're here for you now. So go be there for them. Go stimulate the shit out of the arts economy. Yeah. Go get out there. See some see some music, see some art, see some dance, see some burlesque. Go to a strip club, go to a rock concert. I don't know. Just go get out there and and um and live. Enjoy it. We gotta. We gotta do it. Thank you all uh for the love for last week's episode. Number nine, Cleopatra Nymphomaniac. It was a big, chunky episode, and I really appreciate all the positive feedback. Cleopatra is such a fascinating figure from every angle, from every side. No matter what sort of lens you're looking at her through, she's just the best. Please, 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 if you haven't already, it would mean the world to me if you could subscribe, rate, and review Controversy. It really makes a difference. It only takes half a minute to do. It really helps get us out into the world. I know if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can subscribe, you can rate and review the show. And if you're on Spotify or other mediums, um, then you can follow the show. So please consider doing that. I will love you forever. Also, feel free to spread the word. Tell your friends about us. Those personal recommendations are always how I get my favorite podcasts. So if you like it, tell your friends, share the shit out of our stuff on socials, invite people to like our pages, all that stuff really does mean the world and will make a huge difference to us and to us reaching more people. I don't need to tell you what to do, but 
go do it. Get that good karma. Spread that dirty, filthy history love all over the place. In other news, just a reminder, we do have our Controversy Enamel pins on sale now. Message me or email me at controversypodcast at gmail.com if you would like one. They're $12 including shipping and they're so, so damn adorable. I'll be sending more out this week, so keep an eye out on your letterbox if you've ordered one. And then tag me, tag Controversy in photos of you wearing them once you get them. That will make me feel all kinds of warm fuzzies. And that's all my news, really. Yeah, I'm sort of excited to just get into a nice, short, sharp little episode this week after the monster that was last week's. This week's topic is something I just find fascinating as a concept because it really shines a light on just how ridiculous some types of censorship can be and the lengths that people, and by people I mean largely government and law enforcement, will go to police sexuality or define what is appropriate and inappropriate, as well as what we as societies define as salacious throughout different eras and why. You know, I love wondering why are we such weirdos? Why do we do the things we do? Why do we like the things we like? Why are we offended by the things we're offended by? And I don't pretend to have the answers to any of those questions really, but I do have a little history lesson for you today on something that I highly doubt anyone would have taught you in school. And that is the history of the G-string, the itty bitty little piece of fabric commonly known as the thong. That is correct. Today we are looking at all that ass and where did the humble G-string come from and why? So most of this information today is more or less me regurgitating other people's already incredibly well-written articles. Um, They've already done the hard work, so I'm just going to read it to you and throw my two cents in when I think of something. So the articles I'll be reading from today, we have a 2017 racked article by Jennifer Wright, a 2016 Vice article by Elizabeth King, a 2015 Atlas Obscura article by Ella Morton, as well as a series of Instagram posts put up by one of my favorite people in the entire world, Joe Weldon. Joe Weldon is a much loved burlesque artist based in the USA. She's a sex worker, an author, and teacher. Her Instagram handle is at sexworkerstyle, and I highly recommend you follow her work. It's very in line with what controversy loves and is all about. It's all about exploring the history of sexuality. She does an incredible job of exploring and presenting how the style and fashion of sex workers presents itself in commercial culture, which is amazing. She's a longtime influence of mine. I have huge dreams of having her on this show one day. So if anyone out there knows Joe Weldon and wants to pass on my phone number, please, please let me know. So let's talk about G-strings, shall we? <laughs> so the first thing that I need to mention is that I failed. I failed at something that I really did not think I was going to fail at. And that thing is that I tried so hard 
so hard to find the official answer for why they are in fact called a G-string. And I cannot for the life of me find any one singular answer that seems to sum it up. There are so many explanations and variations out there, but I just couldn't find one that kind of seemed to be the correct answer. So I did find some suggestions that include the following. The G-string was a term invented by Herodotus in his famous work, The Histories. Greek soldiers were known to fight naked except for their shields and armor. However, the G-string or Greek string was worn in particularly cold weather to save embarrassment. Uh, Another one was that when one plucks or draws a bow over the string, the sound made is of the note G. Thus, the name is a G-string. And then there was a few references stating that the shape created when looking at the buttocks in this garment is similar to that of a capital G, which personally, I don't really see that. I kind of look at a capital G sideways and to me, that just looks like a butt, not a butt in a g-string and then finally and one that does pop up over and over again is that it simply stands for groin string or girdle string so before we get to those teeny tiny little micro thongs we're all thinking about right now hell we might even be wearing one right now i know i certainly am we need to go back in time just a little bit and talk about the ancient ancestor of the g-string the loincloth the loincloth is thought to be the precursor of the thong and all underwear for that matter the belly there flap of cloth which covers the buttocks and genitalia was initially only worn by men Probably the most famous loincloth in the world belongs to Otzi the Iceman, an exceptionally well-preserved corpse from around 3100 BC. When he was found in the Italian Alps in 1991, Otzi was fully regaled in his very own loincloth, which just might be the most famous pair of underwear in the world. Otzi and his undertrappings are now found on display at the South Tyrol Museum of Archaeology in Italy. So proper thong underwear showed up in various places around the globe in later centuries, again, worn almost exclusively by men. In fact, worn entirely exclusively by men. Wearers of ancient thongs appeared throughout Asia, Africa, and temperate parts of Europe as far back as 42,000 BC. According to World Clothing and Fashion, thousands of years ago, sand bushmen in various parts of Africa fashioned thongs from animal skin that were held onto their waists with cord or animal sinew. The practice proliferated throughout the world for millennia, extending all the way into ancient Egypt, ancient Greece, and ancient Japan. Japanese men began wearing them for sumo wrestling as early as 250 BC, and they still wear them for that purpose today. So fast forward to the 1800s, and suddenly we have a very interesting traditional garment worn by the indigenous people of East Greenland. It's known as a natsit, and I think I'm, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's N-A-A-T-S-I-T. And the natsit is a often beaded seal fur g-string. 
So the nut set is made by sewing strips of seal pelt together using a thread of reindeer or whale sinew. This garment was often decorated with glass beads tied onto sealskin fringe and was made predominantly for women and was worn under sealskin trousers. So according to Peter Toft from the National Museum of Denmark, this beaded furry thong was intended to be displayed not just during intimate moments, but it was intended to be displayed during intimate moments, but also in polite company. Inside the warm homes of the Greenlandic Inuit, a Nazit was the only thing worn even when having guests or visiting the houses of other families, says Toft. This, of course, shocked the Danish missionaries of the 18th and 19th century who tried to convince the Inuit to wear European linen or longer, you know, bloomers. And apparently this attempt was not very successful. As to why the Greenlandic Inuit made their thong undergarments out of seal skin rather than reindeer, fox, bear, or dog, Toft says that in addition to their durability, seal pelts were best because they provided less insulation than caribou fur. And so sweat building up inside your garment is just as dangerous as being underdressed for the cold, Toft advises, as your perspiration will eventually freeze. So it's kind of more more of a safety health hazard than anything and seal skin thongs therefore were less likely to result in frozen sweat being trapped between the buttocks which is not ideal can't imagine that would be a delightful sensation um Joe Weldon has also encountered mention of a G-string, spelled G-E-E string, that was worn traditionally by Native Americans, or was a term, I should say, used in the 19th century for the English to refer to the Native American breechclout or loincloths, which were made of hides or textiles and were held up at the waist by a string of rawhide. So that's kind of quite a while back. So if we're fast forwarding just a little, let's just take a moment to think of vintage underwear. Yes, I'm giving you permission to visualize underwear. You're welcome. It doesn't really matter what time period you're thinking of, but vintage underwear, it's almost never fitted. You know, think of things like bloomers, drawers, silk tap shorts, French knickers. They're all very loose and billowy as opposed to tight fitting. So before the 19th century, women most often wore nothing as underwear or they wore drawers, which actually had open crotches. So an open crotch drawer underneath their full skirts and their petticoats. And whilst we might think this is a little bit raunchy and a little bit salacious, you know, open crotch underwear is is definitely something of the erotic these days, more so than the practical. Back then it was 100 percent for practicality. It made life so much easier for them to go to the bathroom, obviously lifting their skirts and coming forward rather than sitting backwards on chamber pots and things like that. So modern fitted underwear, it's a very recent innovation. G-strings as lingerie started to appear only in the 19th century and largely via sex work in the form of fetish modeling and burlesque dancers and strippers. 
Speaking of 20th century fetish modeling, this brings us to an incredible character in eroticism who I will only mention briefly because he's got an entire episode coming his way soon. And this person is a man that goes by the name of Charles Guillette. So Guillette is kind of considered to be the pioneer of fetish style. He was the first person in the United States to produce and distribute fetish fetish art and smut. He is the great original granddaddy of uh, American fetish. He's considered to be the predecessor of people such as Irving Claw and John Willie. So he would distribute images of people in this fashion attire, people wearing corsets, people wearing boots, fetish footwear, and most importantly, wearing G-strings. He was later known as the G-string king, and he was actually jailed in the US for sending obscene material to England. So yes, he did time for sending G-string lewds to the queen or queen adjacent Britain, England, you know, (laughs) you know what I meant. The G-string first appeared in costumes worn by showgirls in the United States in Earl Carroll's productions during the 1920s. According to the book Striptease, the first performers to ever sort of have been recorded wearing a G-string were Latina stripper Chiquita Garcia and Princess White Wing, who's a Native American burlesque dancer in 1934. Even though one would technically call them a G-string, these are even more, they're more of a kind of a cheeky cut, like high cut panty than an actual skimpy string G-string. So now, This brings us to 1939, and this is where most historians kind of agree that G-strings really took off. And of course, it was in New York City, and ironically, it was all because of everyone's favorite burlesque arch nemesis, a man who I have in fact spoken about in episode one of this podcast. It is Fiorello Lagardia, who was at the time the mayor of New York. Now, those that remember me talking about him in episode one, he... He was the fun police. He was a moralist. He was a traditionalist. And he despised the hype of burlesque and the popularity of burlesque. So in 1939, New York City was hosting the World's Fair. And knowing that it was going to bring in this huge influx of tourists and people from all over the world, he also knew that popularity was going to spill out into all corners of the city including its burlesque halls. So he really tried to crack down on the obscenity laws in the state at the time. So there was a complete ban on any nudity in shows. If dancers were to show any private parts, they would be arrested. And so these dancers in a very genius and cheeky move towards compliance, they created the thong as a way to be able to show off maximum skin while still abiding by the censorship laws. And a lot of the time they'd wear these skimpy as hell flesh colored mesh G-strings and they'd even attach hair to the front like a makeshift like a little makeshift merkin um, so that it basically had the same effect of being completely nude, which 
I love, I love tidbits like that. We all know, don't try and fuck with strippers, okay? They are the toughest, most resilient people. They are smart as hell and they will always find a way to get a job done. So after that, the term G-string starts to appear uh, in Variety magazine during the 1940s. In New York City, G-strings were worn by female dancers at risque Broadway theater shows and burlesque houses. And during the 30s and 40s, the New York striptease shows in which G-strings were worn were described as strong shows. And then in shows referred to as weak shows or sweet shows, the stripper would wear a higher coverage undergarment, so more of a traditional panty instead. And I just said it, but these are the stories about the golden age of burlesque that I live for, because what would essentially happen is they'd have some kind of sneaky indicator at a burlesque club. It might be a lamp or a a flashlight or a signal from a stagehand or even a certain song playing in the club. And whatever that indicator was, that would let the dancers know whether or not the cops or law enforcement were in the building, either undercover or not. So if the signal was given they'd know to do a soft show or a sweet show, or sometimes it was known as a Boston version or a Sunday version. So those versions, they'd wear less revealing costumes. They would dance less explicitly and strip less. But then of course, once the coast was clear, it was all back to getting nude and all the extra bumps and grinds and teeny tiny G-strings were on display. Roland Barr said of the stripper's G-string, This ultimate triangle, by its pure and geometrical shape, by its hard and shiny material, bars the way to the sexual parts like a sword of purity. So women's underwear did eventually become more fitted, but definitely not as scanty as the G-string, which remained the province of near-nude performers and showgirls and burlesque stars. And that was between the 1940s to really the 1980s and even 90s. It was kind of all about the brief or the panty or the girdle. So the thong, it became slightly more well-known in the 1970s when Rudy Gernrich invented the thong bikini. It was infamously photographed on Lisa Taylor and Jerry Hall in 1975 on the beach. And it's a gorgeous photo. I'll definitely pop that one up on the socials for you to see. And so the thong bikini, it was patented in 1979. And this did begin a phase of more people wearing skimpier cut bottoms to the beach or while sunbathing, especially in South America and parts of Europe. However, in America, the UK and Australia, for example, the notion of the G-string was still very scandalous. Jo Weldon recalls that she personally didn't encounter thong underwear regularly until the 1980s, and she was working uh, in strip clubs at the time. And even then, she says that they were so rare that most of the dancers actually made their own. They weren't something you just went and got from the store. You had to make them yourself. And so they made thongs to dance in and also to sunbake in during the tanning craze of the late 1980s. 80s and 1990s because you just could not find them anywhere else. 
I also wanted to quickly talk about dancers and strippers wearing these undergarments in clubs because there is this whole host of censorship laws that these women, these dancers are constantly needing to abide by and are constantly scrutinized for as well. So there is a very famous photograph. It's of a dancer bending over in front of a Florida judge in 1983. I will post this photo. I think it won a prize, sort of like a photo of the year or something in 1983. This woman, she's bent over in her underwear in front of a judge and she's proving to the judge that her underwear actually meets the censorship standards of the district at the time, which is so, so insane. It's something that just baffles me that since Lagardia with his censorship laws in the 1930s, there are councils dedicated to deciding how many inches or centimeters of skin is appropriate or not to show in certain venues. Different states have different laws. The laws can change. They change constantly depending on who's in charge. They can change depending on the time of day or if food is being served at a venue. The amount of money and time that gets wasted, not just making these laws, but then enforcing them is crazy. If you have any stories like this, please forward them to me. I would love you to email me um, so that I can share them with everyone. I haven't heard any stories like this that come directly from Australia, but I have heard dozens and dozens of sex workers from the USA who speak about constantly being raided by morality police or just regular police who have been told to go do like a panty check on the dancers where they will literally have to, you know, stand on chairs and they'll have torches shone on their groins or like they'll get a, they'll have a tape measure pulled out to measure their underwear to prove that they're complying with local laws. And I should mention that these don't just refer to underwear, but also to to breast exposure and even the amount of pubic hair a dancer has. So I'm not sure if these other pubic hair specific laws still apply now. They may well, but definitely in the 80s and 90s, different areas had different laws on how much pubic hair you not could have, but should have to be deemed, you know, moral in, in the club or as a dancer. So imagine like you're just trying to do your job and you're constantly living in fear of being apprehended or being raided or fined or jailed literally over millimeters of fabric. Crazy. So crazy. You know, it's like, Do we not have better use of resources? Do we not have a better way to spend our time than men going into strip clubs to measure the width of a stripper's G-string? So so the famous catalog chain Fredericks of Hollywood that I have spoken about on this show as well, they began selling thongs in the 1980s, but they were kind of sold almost as a novelty item. They were sold next to items like edible underwear and crutchless panties, and they themselves were called scanty panties, which I also mentioned. That's what uh, Lily Sincere called her G-strings at her store as well, scanty panties. So the even here in the 80s, which seems like five seconds ago, maybe that's just me, but they weren't the kind of thing that you would just wear, you know, that you would just casually throw on underneath a pair of jeans unless 
you know, you're into wearing like edible underwear under your jeans, you know, which is great. But yes, it wasn't really just like a casual, like throw on a thong kind of thing. They were occasionally and famously worn by performers like Cher, who made a very provocative impression on stage in one in 1987. Probably know the picture. She's got fishnets on and her butt's out. She looks amazing. So despite even this, thongs didn't really go mainstream until the 1990s. And it wasn't actually a celebrity who caused thongs to become a part of, you know, casual day-to-day wear. And I I actually remember this. I was a little kid when this happened, but it was in fact Monica Lewinsky. I remember so much about this report. It's just insane. But in the course of revealing her affair with then President Bill Clinton, the Star Report, which was published in 1998, noted that and this is a quote, in the course of flirting with Bill Clinton, Lewinsky raised her jacket in the back and showed him the straps of her thong underwear. This had the inadvertent consequence of making it clear that at the time, many people did not know how thongs worked exactly. And in 1998, for instance, in the course of investigating the Star Report, someone called a local Seattle lingerie boutique because they needed to be assured that thong straps, unlike traditional bikini straps, often did in fact continue above the waistband of a woman's trousers. And so what they were proving here was that Lewinsky wasn't stripping out of her clothing to show off her body to the president. It's just, you know, this is just the underwear that people are wearing. This is what it's supposed to look like. Pretty much after this, thongs just exploded and suddenly it just seemed that everyone was wearing a thong underneath those low, super low rise jeans of the 90s and 2000s. And all I can think about is the likes of Paris Hilton and Christina Aguilera in those low, those super low hipster jeans with that scanty little G popping out of the top. (laughs) So hot, so hot. Oh my God. So in 1999, the Wall Street Journal was declaring that the thong was now, quote, naughty for nice people, as evidenced by the fact that thongs were being sold amongst other places at J. Crew, Abercrombie and Fitch, and Victoria's Secret. They were marketed not as a sexy way to kind of show off your body, but as a practical, functional, comfortable way to wear new slim fit pants like yoga pants or tight jeans. And thongs eventually became a real fixture of pop culture and mass fashion. And of course, we all know it and love it. Cisco's 1999 hit song, Thong Song, rose to number three on the Billboard Hot 100 in 2000 with lyrics like all night long let me see that thong oh, it's a sonnet it's a sonnet for the modern age um, by 2001 Fredericks of Hollywood was celebrating the thong's 20th anniversary and they claimed that 90% of every underwear sale it had were from thongs. So not so rare anymore. Everyone seems to have jumped on the thong train. And then another significant pop culture moment for the thong came with the pearl thong, which caused 
a literal sensation in 2013 when underwear designer Brackley unleashed the pearl thong onto the world. And they still sell these. They're still incredibly popular. While the company did not explicitly state the purpose of this specific garment, the public quickly picked up on the fact that they were meant to double as a sort of sexual leisure instrument for women. Brackley still describes this sensuous pair of thongs as designed for the passionate at heart. I don't know if people wear these regularly. I remember it was on an episode of Sex in the City once and it caused a, a massive stir. The thought of wearing like hard pearls against my groin for the entire day kind of just sounds incredibly uncomfortable to me. But hey, if you think I should do it, if you uh, have done it yourself and have had a positive experience, feel free to let me know. But right now I will say I'm definitely on the fence about those. So that was 2013. Several writers declared 2014 the year of the butt. And that was largely based on a few massive pop culture references. I mean, we can all say definitely sort of since around 2014, it's all about the butt now. Hey, it's all about big butts, tiny little waists, little tiny string bikinis. The first thing I can think of is Nicki Minaj's Anaconda album cover and film clip. You've got uh, Rihanna's denim thong that caused an absolute stir. Miley Cyrus's weed leaf thong leotard that she wore. There's so many great references that we've had in the last little while. And aside from that, look, I I love a G-string. For all the talk of finding them, you know, uncomfortable and wedgie-like, I have to disagree. I think they're super damn comfy. I have a huge butt, and I think that most people in the same position will agree that trying to contain your ass cheeks into like a humble pair of underwear just isn't great. I don't find it comfortable, but look, each to their own. It's just got to be whatever you like. I don't know if I think G-strings are necessarily sexier or more erotic than any other particular cut of underwear. I like all butts regardless of what kind of underwear they're wearing. You know, all butts are great butts. But yes, the history of G-strings shows that many things can be read in a tiny, tiny strip of fabric. The discontents of the bourgeoisie, the influences of cultures unrelated to theatrical striptease, and most importantly, I think the ingenuity and artistry of strippers in the face of ridiculous censorship laws. Furthermore, it's a warning that the literal policing of strippers' bodies is a symptom of the social policing of women's and femmes' bodies in general. As a final sentence, we sort of have to say thank you to Mayor Lagardia because it seems that the garment that was first used in America as an attempt to ward off immorality and controversy has in fact provided us with decades worth of that very thing. There you have it. That is my little presentation on the history of the G-string. Huge thank you to Joe Weldon, Ella Morton, Elizabeth King, and Jennifer Wright for your research and your articles. I hope you all liked it. Don't forget to check out the socials for some references this week. Assuming I don't get banned for showing you pictures of butts, but hey, we'll see. Don't forget you can subscribe to the Patreon or support the show via PayPal or email me anytime at controversypodcast at gmail.com. I hope you have a gorgeous week. All my love to you. Go shake your butts in your tiniest G-string right now. Off you go. That's what you have to do right now. 
Take care of one another, pay for your pawn, don't fake your orgasms, and I will see you next Tuesday.